0: the dilemma that Whitehead finds himself in of this question of theodicy. Because the issue is, on the one hand, if you take the transcendent approach, then it solves the theodistical question for you because God is so distant from the lousiness of human beings, He has nothing to do with injustice and evil and murder and violence and all of that. But the compromise there is there is no basis for intimacy between God and His creation. On the other hand, if you take the path that Whitehead and many people like Ibn Arabi took, which is, there is this deep sense of what we might call in Arabic Takhallul, and Abraham the prophet is known as Khalil, the intimate lover or beloved of God, and the word Khalil, Ibn Arabi takes it from Khal, which is vinegar, because vinegar permeates food. So, the Khalil is the one, is the beloved who's permeated by the lover, or vice versa. So, this entire universe is sort of permeated by a certain sense of divinity. But if you do that, you get your intimacy, you get your eminence, but now you have to deal with questions of theodicy.
1: Welcome to Conversations in Process. I'm Jared Morningstar, uh, hosting along with Jay McDaniel. Uh, today we are talking with a dear friend of mine, Dr. Ali Hussein, who does some really remarkable scholarly work on. Uh, Sufism, particularly the thought of Ibn al-Arabi, uh, the great Andalusian mystic. And today we're going to be kind of mashing up uh, Sufism, process thought, uh, see see where we can find some, some connections, some perhaps uh, different emphases that we can learn from on, on both sides. Uh, and this conversation will probably look at art and spirituality as well, which is certainly a major interest of all three of us quite looking forward to, to seeing what insights we can glean there
2: now I'll, I'll get started i'll leave by saying that i have so much to learn about sufism and from you uh, i have done a little study and so i'm not entirely ignorant but relatively ignorant and uh, your essay which i read was deeply instructive it kind of confirmed something that I felt, and that is that the Sufi tradition, at least as you present it, is very much influenced by uh, Neoplatonic ways of thinking. And I don't know if that's accurate or not, but Whitehead's thought, which so shapes the process tradition, has areas of overlap with Neoplatonism, but also areas of difference. Uh-huh. And so to talk about both sides it is great. But mm-hmm. was is that impression right or wrong, Ali, just about the influence of Neoplatonism?
0: I think if we look at the if we look at the development of Sufism historically, particularly you know the the figure that I've sort of spent the past decade with Ibn Arabi, who was born in in Murcia, in in present-day Spain, and then spent sort of his teenage years' formative period between uh, in the Iberian countryside amongst Christians and, and, and Jewish theologians and thinkers, that was the, as my advisor, Professor Alexander Knish, calls it, floating motifs of Neoplatonism and uh, Jewish philosophy and mysticism and Christian mysticism, certainly were the, were the bread and butter of, uh, of theological discourse. In that region of the world. What's remarkable is that Ibn Arabi, in his writings, in his magnum opus, The Meccan Openings, he is uh, very harsh against Arab philosophers of the hmm. kinds uh, of Al Kindi and uh, Al Farabi. As a child, he had uh, a meeting with a uh, Ibn Rushd, who was uh, a friend of his father's. And in this, uh, Momentous meaning, and I think this is kind of leading us to his relationship with Plato, uh, or the Neo-Platonism, sort of to say, he began having visions at you know around 10 years old, and his father, the the best person he knew to talk about about this is Averroes, right? He was the citizen philosopher of of Iberia at the time, so he took a 10 year old Ibn Arabi. Ibn Arabi is narrating this story. And he says, when he saw me, this young kid without a beard yet, he just stood out of respect. And then he asked me a question. And this question, and the answer that Ibn Arabi gives to this question, I think is emblematic of sort of the difference between philosophy as a rational discourse and between what Ibn Arabi is trying to do. So Averroes asked him, he said, have you found truth to be as we, the group of philosophers, have found it to be through rational reflection? And Ibn Arabi said, yes. And Averroes was very happy. And then he said, no. And then Averroes sank to his chair, sort of shocked. And then Ibn Arabi said to him, he said, yes and no. Between the yes and the no, spirits leave their bodies and heads are separated from their necks. And what's operating here is this idea of perplexity, right? Is this idea of paradox that I think is central to Ibn Arabi's sort of vision. So when it comes to philosophy, Ibn Arabi is unabashed about the inability of the rational mind as one of the faculties of the human being about its inability to access higher truth. And so when he looked at the gamut of philosophical thought, and and he wasn't the first person. I mean, before him, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali had passed away maybe 50 years before Ibn Arabi was born. Uh, Ghazali passed away in 1111, and Ibn Arabi was born in 1165. Ghazali had written a book called The Intentions of Philosophers, where he looked at the different philosophical schools. But Ibn Arabi's main objective is that Anything that sort of has an emanationist, in which case in, in in Sufism, in this Sufi metaphysics, it's theophanies. Anything that has that sort of root and foundation must be truth. Because it's not, it's not simply what he has learned from the books, it's his experiential vision, right? So for him, al-Farabi and al-Kindi, as Aristotelian, or custodians of the peripatetic, tradition, were not as correct or authentic as Plato himself, whom Ibn Arabi actually calls Plato the divine. And by divine, of course, he doesn't mean that Plato was God or or a deity, but that in Arabic, if you call somebody divine or lordly, it means they have this connection, right? They're receiving this, this direct knowledge. And so undoubtedly, because Ibn Arabi received that Neoplatonic, which is of course Plotinus's thought, through actually the uh, Ismaili tradition, and Ismailism is of course the branch of uh, of Shi'i thought that eventually, after much revolutionary thought and uh, uh, and wars and so and so on and so forth, their headquarters in in what is present day Egypt became sort of a flowering of Neoplatonic thought, um, and so that through figures like Ibn Masarra through figures like Ibn Babajan would eventually find its way to Ibn Arabi's thoughts. So for all intents and purposes, and this is, you know, something I tell people who ask me about the genius of Ibn Arabi, and I'm inclined to say that, you know, the genius of a thinker in general is not in their ability to concoct new ideas. That is rarely the case right? What, what the genius of a thinker or a polymath is in what I like to call, or what uh, uh, Claude Levi strauss calls uh, uh, bricolage, right? The ability to take a set number of tools that already exist and to create something completely new from them. And I think that that's what really what Ibn Arabi did, right? So Ibn Arabi brought the richness of the Sufi heritage before him, which was an ascetic tradition that then developed into theoretical asceticism about the condition of the heart and discipline of the heart, purification of the heart, together with divine law, which he was well grounded in and the other disciplines of the faith, together with now this neoplatonic tradition for this class of writing that I don't think we have anymore. Nobody does that sort of encyclopedic writing about the reality of our existence right asking the big existential questions unless you look at uh, at uh, whitehead right or, or figures like that here and there that do something like that that was a long-winded answer and i apologize for that
2: no that's that's fine and i actually think whitehead's approach was bricolage as well mm-hmm. and also one thing i, I like about Whitehead is I don't think he, he reduces knowledge to philosophical knowledge. Mm-hmm. Everything is feeling for Whitehead. Mm-hmm. His word prehension, which sounds like to perceive something, he says is synonymous with to feel something, to feel the presence of something else. And so feeling runs all the way through in Whitehead, and he equates it with energy, actually. He thinks within wow. the depths of atoms, as they respond to one another, they're actually feeling the presence of one another, prehending one another is his word. And there can be unconscious as well as there's, most of it is unconscious. Unconscious prehending and conscious prehending. So some people speak of him as a panpsychist. Uh, there's something like psyche everywhere. He actually didn't use that word, but he did think there's something like feeling everywhere. Some of it is conscious. Some of it is non-conscious. Most of it is non-conscious, but it's bristling with a kind of vitality. And I've often heard that the Quran uh, linguistically and evocatively kind of presents a a sense of the universe as likewise bristling with vitality. Yes. I think uh, Muhammad Iqbal noted this resonance and said in in that way, at least, uh, Islam is, is a kind of process philosophy. So be it, whatever names you want to use. So there's some folks in the process world that I come from, that are developing Islamic process philosophies, sensing that you've got two organic visions of the universe bristling, where there may be a difference and an important difference. And so this is really what I want to get to. I don't think Whitehead is a very good emanationist, but I know why he's not. And so maybe we can talk about this. Early in his Uh, Writing career in a book called Science in the Modern World, he developed a view of ultimate reality as he called it creativity. But it was kind of like Spinoza's one substance of which everything is our modes, our manifestations. So metaphorically, the image would be the sun emitting photons, and everything is a photon emanating from the single source, the sun. And that idea made sense to him. And he wrote a whole book with that image of a substantial one of which everything is a manifestation. But when he came to writing his magnum opus, A Process in Reality, things changed a little bit. He had a sense that there is something of which everything is an expression. He still called it creativity. And he even called it the ultimate reality. But then, but then he used the word God to name not creativity per se but rather a kind of inclusive expression guiding force itself creative so it's a little like plato's demiurge his sense of god was that deep down god is about love in his language a tender care that nothing be lost a fellow sufferer who understands so it was the sense of a kind of deep companion everywhere But he also recognized, as do we all, violence, terror, injustice, tragedy. And he did not think that that comes from God. So he had to distinguish in his own mind this something, of which everything is an expression, from the loving God as one instance thereof, if I can say a little bit more Ali, excuse me, I'm going on too long too, but No, 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 please do. One more one more thing here. In the process and reality he says the essence of actuality, the essence of actuality, this is a quote, is decision. And he was using the word decision in its original sense of a cutting off of certain possibilities and an actualizing of others. That's what he meant by decision. So it was not necessarily a conscious process, but moment by moment, there's a cutting off of certain possibilities for responding to what is presented to you, and an actualization of others, which simultaneously cuts off the others. And he thought something like decision goes all the way down into the depths of matter. So it's not simply a human phenomenon. Quantum events within the depths of the atom are, are moments of decision. And he also called that uh, at One or two times in, in Processing Reality, he called it self-creativity, that an event creates itself in its response to what is given for it. And so that big notion of creativity, you know, the source of which everything is an expression, he began to say it is manifest among other places in the act of decision. And God decides, but so do quarks and amoebas and rapists. <laughs> and saints. And so for that reason, he uncoupled the notion of God from the ultimate creativity. Ali, many, many Christians wished he hadn't done that, because it seemed to subordinate God to something right. smaller yeah. than the ultimate. And so you'll find some Christians saying, well, creativity is the Godhead, and you know, there's the Godhead and the loving God, and you can say yes to both, and just call creativity the Godhead, and all is well. But I don't think Whitehead went in that direction. He actually had two different names. So enough of me. Back to you.
0: What does this elicit in you? So there is sort of a saying amongst the Sufis that whatever you think God is, God is other than that. But I think, you know, one of the eye-opening epiphanies I had when I was reading Ibn Arabi is that monotheisms in general today have sort of focused on only one side of perceiving God and perceiving our relationship with God. And we may call that negative theology to preserve the transcendence of God. And I think much of what we might call modernism and postmodernism has been sort of a response to that, to that sort of distancing of God, which in turn has eliminated the possibility for intimacy.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: And creativity is is, is a part of that, right?
2: Well, creativity is, is manifest in so many ways, but one expression would be intimacy. Exactly.
0: So for Ibn Arabi, there is what the sort of overarching concept governing our relationship with divinity, shall we say, is this idea of Tawheed. Mm -hmm. And Tawheed means, literally, it means to make one. Mm -hmm. It's making one, but in a verbal noun form, the act of making one. So making one, this idea of Tawheed has been abused by everybody from fundamentalists and extremists who have used such a concept to limit the idea of Tawheed to making it a narrow perception of particular acts of worship and everything else is considered against Tawheed. Or in this case, it would be considered polytheism. In which case it's very difficult to be someone who has pure Tawheed and very easy to be everything else. But then Ibn Arabi comes along and he emphasizes that there is two parts to Tawhid. One is perceiving the transcendence of God. And this is what negative theology and philosophical discourse, and in Islam specifically, dialectical theology, has been sort of at the heart of Islamic theological discourse for centuries. And it was actually looked down upon in the early generations. They they, they did not want people to engage in dialectics at all. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, They did not want people to engage in philosophical discourse at all. It was was, uh, uh, sort of a much more vicarious understanding of who God is through companionship with the Prophet. But then mingling with, uh, you know, when Islam spread to areas like Damascus and Syria, and Muslims began conversing with John of Damascus and Christian theologians who had just come out from the councils of, 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 of Nicaea and Chalcedon, they had to develop these responses to very, very uh, crucial questions. One of them being, you know, a general conversation that would take place is, between a Christian theologian and the Muslims is, is the Quran this the word of God? Yes, it is. Is Jesus the word of God? Yes, he is. Is the Quran created? Nope. Then how is Jesus created? Ah, well, we don't have an answer for that yet. So then you have to distinguish between the word of God and the speech of God. Is the Quran created or uncreated? And that really became, I mean, this is one of the central issues that gave birth to Islamic theological schools and heresiology at large. So Ibn Arabi is looking at divine transcendence as being God as can only, as this idea, whatever you think God is, God is other than that. But you cannot have a complete appreciation of reality if your only relationship with God is transcendence. So then he brings together imminence. And imminence is this permeating presence, not of God as a separate entity from the universe. But it's this all permeating, to use a Star Wars term, this all permeating force in everything. So you get verses in the Quran, for example, where it says, there is nothing like him. And he's the all hearing and all seeing. And yet you get other verses which says, and he is with you wherever you are. Or, and he is closer to you than your jugular vein. So then it becomes at least the way I perceive it from my vantage point the dilemma that Whitehead finds himself in of this question of theodicy because the issue is on the one hand if you take the transcendent approach then it solves the theodistical question for you because God is so distant from the lousiness of human beings he has nothing to do with Injustice and evil and murder and violence and all of that, but the compromise there is there is no basis for intimacy between God and his creation. On the other hand, if you take the path that Whitehead and many people like Ibn Arabi took, which is there is this deep sense of what we might call an Arabic Takhallul and Abraham the prophet is known as Khalil, the intimate lover or beloved of God. And the word khalil ibn Arabi takes it from khal, which is vinegar, because vinegar permeates food, so the khalil is the one, is the beloved who's permeated by the lover, or vice versa, so this entire universe is sort of permeated by a certain sense of divinity, but if you do that, you get your intimacy, you get your eminence, but now you have to deal with questions of theodicy, so for Ibn Arabi, the way he understood that is that, yes, and in on one hand, what we perceive as evil is a matter of relationship. And every evil act that is committed by a human being is a lack of etiquette with one of the divine names. So what's happening is that in this metaphor or in this system of theophanies, God has names of beauty and majesty. So a name of beauty is, for example, the merciful, the, the, the gentle, the subtle. And God also has names of vengeance, the all prideful, the, the, one who t- the vengeful one, the one who is all powerful. So Ibn Arabi says the human being has an etiquette with each one of these names of God. And the, the misinformation or the misjudgment of many human beings is that just because it's the name of God that gives me the right to deal with it, to dress myself in it. And Ibn Arabi mentions a story, and it's attributed to another saint that's mentioned in his book, a student who was with his uh, sheikh or his guide, and he was teaching him this, right? That everything in the universe, you know, like Master Yoda, everything in the universe is, is, a man, is has the force in it. And the student finishes the class, go walks in the desert and he finds a snake. This he ah, this is one of the names of God. So he goes to play with the snake and he gets bit by the snake and he's dying. And his guide comes to help him. And he says, my son, what happened? He says, well, you told me that everything is a theophany and I found the snake and I wanted to engage with God through this the- theophany. And he said, my son, God has names of majesty and your etiquette with those names of majesty, what is required of you in those circumstances is to step away. And when you engage with those names, that's what we call evil. So ultimately evil in this grand scheme of both a sort of a complete or perfect understanding of our relationship with reality, divinity, whatever it is, is to understand the subtlety of what is being manifest. And in turn, what is our responsibility towards what is being manifest? If it's a name of of beauty, then our etiquette is to dress ourselves in it. So God is the all grateful. We have to be grateful. God is the patient one. We have to be patient. God is the clement and the gentle. We have to be clement and gentle. We have to be merciful. God is all-knower. We should seek knowledge. But all God is also the all-prideful. And we are specifically forbidden from being prideful. So then it, it, it becomes this sort of mechanism. And when it comes to creativity, this is sort of one of my dear topics to my heart, specifically from the vantage point of, of Ibn Arabian and Sufi metaphysics, is that ultimately everything that human beings do, the, the ultimate objective of a human being for Ibn Arabi is to become what is known as al-insan al-kamil, the perfect human being. And the perfect human being, what we can say probably uh, uh, Nietzsche would call the ubermensch, right, is the perfect mirror, very clean and polished mirror, wherein God may reflect upon his names and attributes. And Ibn Arabi is very specific to say that the perfect man is not only perfect, he is perfect and complete. And I think that this is really important. He says perfection is to reach the highest standard in morals. So to be perfect in your patience, is to reach the highest standard of patience. But that's different than being complete in your patience. And it's a really beautiful, I think, humanistic, if we might say, approach and understanding. Not only do you reach your highest standard of patience, gratitude, repentance, clemency, but you also have appreciation for all the various degrees at which everybody who is before you is at. Because you remember where you were. Right? And the Quran actually specifically in a verse says, All you who believe, if you tread upon the earth, do not say to someone who greets you with peace, you're not a believer. And then he says, Remember the way you were. Right? So it's this principle of acknowledging the path, the journey of where everybody of where I have been, and even though I'm at a much different place now, I recognize I'm not, I don't only tolerate where people are at. No, no, no. I witness divinity where people are at. So now, if that's the case, if the perfect, complete man is someone who is a manifestation of divine attributes, one of those is the creator, which would be where, I mean, the word creator, the name of God creator in Arabic is khalik, and Khallaq which is derivative of khaliq, means the one who is creative. Creative in a beautiful way. Right, Al-Badi' is also another name of God, which means the innovator. Someone who innovates beautifully. Al-Musawwib, the one who forms. So in my research, when I was doing my dissertation specifically on the image of Jesus in, in Ibn Arabi's thought, what sort of emerged for me is that in many ways, we can call the principle of creativity in Sufism Christ, the inner creativity of a human being that is the inner Christ. Let, let me jump in here. Yes. Uh, to be
2: continued, but I don't want to let some of the things you said fall away. The The idea that we think in relational terms uh, is, is a... a essential to the process tradition, and so I, I really like that. I resonate with that as a process thinker. There's a dimension of God in Whitehead. Uh, Whitehead says it's not It's not only the case that God is imminent within the world, it's also the case that the world is imminent within God, and, and let me say, let me personalize that. If you take a, a parent and a child, and the child is playing in the presence of the, of the mother or the father, the mother or father is affected by yes. the mood and joy of the child. The laughter of the child becomes the mother and father's laughter. And conversely, if the child is suffering, the suffering of the child becomes part of the mother or father too. Yes. So there's a receptivity, a receptivity Right. in the right. divine, from Whitehead's perspective.
0: yes,
2: and, and you could even say a vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So uh, among the, the many names of God, if you're thinking Whiteheadianly, you would have um, all vulnerable, all vulnerable, the fellow sufferer who understands and is affected by. And one more dimension of that, up, uh, God can be and often is surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's novelty uh, when, when the child plays, the child may say something totally unanticipated by the father or mother. And by the way, that that act did not preexist. And from a whiteheadian perspective, right. so the moment of novelty was not foreknown, mm-hmm. not even by God. Uh, the future is open also for the for the great companion, and so. We can do things that surprise God, sometimes in horrible ways and sometimes in beautiful ways. Right. But this is a God who receives novelty and, and, and is affected by novelty. So I often get the impression, and rightly or wrongly, uh, by the way, I think you were talking about Tashbi and Tanza. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on board and I really like, like the notion of. God is always more than our concept of God, and, and I'm, I'm yes. all—we'll get to that. But but right now, I think we're in—which is it, Tashbi or Tansi that talks about the nearness of God? Tashbi. Tashbi. So right now, we're in the Tashbih for a second.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I sometimes get the feeling, maybe wrongly, that in Islamic spirituality, at least as, as I've understood it, you can't talk about reciprocal intimacy. It, intimacy. Well, you can't talk about God being surprised. You cannot talk about God being vulnerable. You cannot talk about God as being affected. And if God is vulnerable, it would only be because God chooses to be vulnerable. So it's kind of as if, you know, God can choose to be vulnerable. But I think process thought wants to say there's something in in the very essence of God that's a deep vulnerability. And, of course, so many of them are influenced by Christianity, and so, you know, that's where the cross would enter in. But not all. They're Jewish process theologians, too. Um, They're Buddhist process theologians, too, that build upon the Pure Land tradition. So this is not simply unique. But anyway, uh, back to you. uh, So I'll put it boldly. Can can God be vulnerable and uh, be affected by novelty? There you go.
0: Yeah, I think I think the, the 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 real you know what I'm trying to 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 sort of I mean in my in my sort of perception what I was reading Ibn Arabi is I I, I would keep asking myself how is he how would he look at something like process uh-huh. right yeah and yeah. and I think that for him and for many other Sufi saints he would say this is all perfectly within tashbih. Mm-hmm. That uh-huh. it's a necessary yes. part of tashbih. Oh, and see. there are actually many narrations where God is surprised and God laughs. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, in Islam, God, when he displays these human emotions, he's almost always happy and never sad, which oh, is okay. very, which is very, it is very, so God in many, in many hadiths, he laughs. But there uh-huh. isn't a single instance where God cries,
2: uh-huh.
0: and 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 the reason for that is not necessarily that He is oblivious to human suffering, but it's that from the grand scheme of things, everything that occurs in this world is like a child who hurts themselves and then goes running to their mother, and. The mother keeps telling the child, don't do this, you're going to hurt yourself, don't do this, you're going to hurt yourself, don't do this, you're going to hurt yourself. And then when finally the child goes back, the mother is laughing because it's just the nature of the child to want to venture off of them by themselves and then go back to, to their roots. But there is this sense of God playing along. Now, the, the issue here is, is that, is it true vulnerability? as human vulnerability, is it true amazement and being surprised? The issue is is that for Ibn Arabi, there isn't one vantage point at which to look at God. And I think that's really the key here. So for example, Ibn Arabi says, if you're going to approach God as servant, in which case you have to acknowledge Him as Lord. So God has many names, as we said. One of them is Rab, which means Lord. If you want something from God, you should not call Him by any other name other than Rab, because that means you're completely unaware of what those names entail. So he says, anybody who approaches God as Ahad, which is one of the names of God, which means singular, but it's not like Wahid, which means the one, which is what, what you know what, what Plato would have would have would have talked about, right? The one. Ahad entails the complete absence of creation. God is singular and nothing is with him. I mean, that's 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 the ultimate sort of divine transcendence. He says, if you want something from him, and you're approaching him as Ahad, you don't know what you're doing. Because all that entails is that you cease to exist. But then at the same time, him as Lord, and I think this is where we're getting to what you're talking about, about this, this sort of deep sense of intimacy. God as Lord, as Lord, and I emphasize, bolden and italicize and underline, as Lord, requires the presence of the servant. Because it's a mutual will. Re- so Ibn Arabi even describes us describe it, describes this relationship as we sustain him as much as he sustains us. So when Ibn Arabi looks at process theology, is it? Do we call it theology, theory? You
2: cannot go either way. But it's both a philosophy and a theology and a spirituality.
0: Uh, but she, then, whatever then, word you whatever word you choose is okay. I like I like theosophy. I might just use theosophy. Let's go for process, it. Let's go for yeah. it. Uh, process theosophy or you know somebody else whom I believe it, I mean he's one of the greatest uh, continental philosophers of of the 20th century, Jacques Derrida, and he would look at him as this is emanation. And mm. Ibn Arabi's objective, I think this is important, as a saint, as a polymath who has a very soteriological motivation of mm-hmm, salvation? Yeah. What he wants to do, as he looks at each of these theologies or theosophies, is trying to find a way to root them in his perspective of divinity. In mm-hmm. which case, they're good. They're, yeah. This is good. I yeah. can see. I can. I can gain knowledge of God that's from his, this. That's
2: his impulse. Yeah, to to recognize yes. the good.
0: Well, let's so, let's yeah. turn,
2: yeah, let's turn, Ali, just briefly, because I want to get to Jesus and Christ and the Logos and, yes. and, and, and what life is all about, too. Right. Um, but just for a moment, a little tanzi, would that be the right word? Yes, tanzi, um, yes. Tanzi. Two things just to note about Whitehead. One of the quotations I really appreciate in Whitehead uh, early on in the preface uh, process in reality is, In philosophical inquiry, the merest hint as to finality of statement is an exhibition of folly. We can never with our minds plumb the depths of things. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So so he he says that in the preface, and then he goes on to develop this kind of amazing system. But he says it's a likely story. He's quoting Plato there. Right. It's it's but a likely story. Some people in the process world approach Whitehead as um, they're interested in the systematic nature of Whitehead. Right. And I, I get it. But for others, it's more that that he's a, a springboard for ideas, mm-hmm. uh, kind of like a spark. Yeah, And, and there are a lot of sparks, and, and you take some of them. So I want to take one of those sparks right now. And it's, it's his notion of what he called the primordial nature of God. And that's different in his thought from something called the consequent nature of God. They're both real. The consequent nature is God as being affected by and weaving an organic whole everlastingly out of what is received. The consequent nature, the primordial nature, by contrast, is that aspect of God which precedes and not temporally, but ontologically, the creation. And he says that it's filled with potentiality. As a matter of fact, he calls them pure potentialities. Mm -hmm. He even has a name for them, eternal objects. Mm -hmm. Eternal objects. And eternal for him means non-temporal. Right. Not not just everlasting, actually non-temporal. And so you imagine this... um, this mind, this that you can't fathom really, that's filled with potentialities. Now, from his perspective, we in the world actualize them. And, and so that's kind of like de- that there's that decision again. It's kind of like, you know, here are the names, but what do you do with them? <laughs> and right. it, you're doing it, you're doing Yeah. So that's why, in some ways, he's not a full fledged emanationist because. The potentialities don't get actualized without the cooperation of things that that exist a lot uh, with God out in the world. But his image is not that there's a once and for all actualization. It's an ongoing process. And so the universe itself is an ongoing process of actualizing possibilities that were in the mind of God that, that actually were not actualized before. That can be new possibilities, but then certainly in a human life and in human society, exactly the same. But this aspect of God is more than intimacy. It's profoundly transcendent. Now, he was a mathematician, so he thought that when you played with mathematical ideals, you're, you're somehow prehending aspects of the very mind of God, also possibilities for feeling, actually. There's two kinds of pure potentialities, geometric and, and effective. But anyway, I just wondered if if some if if that touches at least some sense of both the creativity of what you're talking about, you know, in your yes. paper, the isthmus, the, yes. the, the, the between place, the yes. the Barzak, is that right? Yes. Yeah, there's a kind of between the primordial nature and, and the universe is this realm of pure potentiality in the primordial nature but
0: actualized by the world. Uh, Any thoughts there? Yeah, well, a lot of thoughts. So, everything in the universe for Ibn Arabi has at the root something called an immutable entity, which is in Arabic, ayn thabita, immutable entity. And that is... The heart, the deepest sense of the thing that never perishes, because it is a part of God. It is God. It is the knowledge of God or the knowledge that God has of that thing. Ah, interesting. And that knowledge that God has of that thing is like a seed that is put in the soil of the spirit and the plant that grows out is the body. And all the potentialities, to use that word, of the forms and the lives that the human being has before he comes to this earth and after he leaves this earth are all actualizations of the possibilities that reside in his or her immutable entity. Now, this idea couples with the fact that Ibn Arabi, another idea, perhaps part of the Neoplatonic tradition that he inherited is the idea of microcosm macrocosm. So So, the human being is like a large universe and the universe is a large man and there is actually a narration that is attributed either to the Prophet uh, himself or his cousin where it says, the sickness is within you and the cure is within you. You assume Mm -hmm. yourself to be something small when the entire universe is enfolded within you. So the Quran as scripture sort of capitalizes on that because every verse of the Quran is called ayah. Mm -hmm. And ayah means sign. The the, the word itself means sign. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, even in English, the word verse, is related to universe, right? So then you get this sort of poesis and the poetic nature of creation, right? That maybe ours is but one universe in a a multiverse. But what's happening is that, you know, in the Quran, there is a verse that says, we will show them our signs. And the word used is the plural of ayah. We will show them our signs in the horizons and in their own selves. Mm. So there is a correlation a projection between every verse of the written Quran, which in Arabic and Islamic philosophy is known as Al-Kitab al-Mastur, the written book. So scripture is the written book. There is a correlation between every verse in Al-Kitab al-Mastur, Al-Kitab al-Marqum, the decorated book, which is the human being, Mm -hmm. the ornamented book, Mm -hmm. and Al-Kitab al-Mandur, which is the background to your uh, your, uh, thing, is nature. -hmm. Right? So there is a correlation. Every tree and every pebble and every rock and every stream that you find in nature is found in the Quran and is found in the human being. Uh, Back to Tohid,
2: just for a moment.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, You said that Tohid means making one. A word about Whitehead here. Um, He thinks that every actual entity in the universe, that's his phrase, is actually a moment, a momentary happening, and it's a happening by which the many of the past actual world are gathered into the unity of the present moment, and he calls it the process of concrescence, that's his coined term. Now his phrase is, the many become one and are increased by one, because as the many are gathered into one, the one creates something new, which then becomes part of a many thereafter. There's a sense in which every moment is a making one. Mm -hmm. Every moment is an act of tohid. in that Mm -hmm. sense. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: He understands God as the making one of the entire plurality, Mm -hmm. the multiplicity. Mm -hmm. Uh, If there are universes upon universes, of course, they are among the many that are made one by God for Him, again and again and again and again and again, forever. So the it's a kind of toehead in process, but it is the ultimate toehead, right? And, and I'm a microcosm of that toehead. Yes, I'm not the fullness of that toehead at right. all. In my finite perspective and my limitations, you need, you know, far be it from me. <laughs> claim yes. to be the the the, the deep Tohid. But it's it's interesting that Tohid is creative. It's not a static state in Whitehead. No, not at all. I'm guessing not in Ibn Arabi either.
0: No. It's a constant witnessing. The word would be shuhud and wujud. Hmm. Now the word wujud, which is being in Arabic. So Ibn Arabi is, for him language is everything.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Ibn Arabi is as traditional and ancient of a linguist, this idea of sacred linguistics mm-hmm. that greatly, you know, contrasts with uh, Saussure's linguistics, uh, sort of to say, whereby the relationships and the etymological relationships between words and the names and the named are, ha- are hardly haphazard, are hardly coincidental. So once he finds, and he does creatively, relate words to one another, that for him is a metaphysical reality of the affair. So for him, wujud being is related to uh, the uh, epistemology, so wujud would be the ontology, and then wajada, which is to find, is uh, the inseparability between ontology and epistemology. And then the third term, wajd, which is ecstasy, is sort of the, the experiential, or as the Sufis would say, dhawq, um, uh, taste, the, the inseparability of the... So this is, this is not a, a, a rational transcend, but it's, this is a very uh, sort of, as you would say, intimate, primordial, visceral experience. What you mentioned about this acknowledgement that for each human being, they're not the fullness. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 this is, I think, also at the heart of what Ibn Arabi is talking about in the sense that, I mean, the Quran is very specifically says the creation of the heavens and the earth is greater than the creation of man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's just that blunt, right? The creation of people. But yet, there is this sense that there is a great perplexity uh, in the fact that the human being, despite being a speck of dust, as Carl Sagan, right, said, uh, we just, we're just like a. Even our planet is like a speck of dust in the grand scheme of things. We are in 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 some ways the center of attention, but but here here is the thing: our center of attention is in our ability to perceive our insignificance. Yeah. And, and I think we are, as Ibn Arabi would say, we are great teachers in our ability to inculcate the fact that we're not everything. I mean, Ibn Arabi, for him, even, you know, back to this idea of language, he looks at animals as teachers, mm-hmm. because one of the words for an animal in Arabic is behima, and behima. Uh, he takes it to the root of Bahamut, which is one of the divine presences. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the divine presence of God as only intelligible by God, mm-hmm. beyond mm-hmm. any name. So his idea is that what we make fun of the sounds that animals make, mm-hmm. but in reality, they're speaking in the language of the spirits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's not the first to do that. Abdel Aziz al-Dabakh from Morocco also says that all these words that infants speak when they're born, uh, this is the language of the spiritual world. And he actually Mm -hmm. takes it back to Syriac. Um, So he says, you know, when a child, when an infant says Gaga, Gaga is one of the names of God in the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. Mumu is the word uh, for water in the spiritual world. And the reason why infants speak like that is because they are uttering, spiritual realities that would cause chaos in the physical world. Mm. So in the Quran, all the miraculous events that happened to the Prophet are described by God as he addresses him as servant. Mm. So he says, um, glory be to the one who took his servant on Mm. the night ascension journey. Glory or all praise be to the one who brought down the Quran upon his servant. Mm -hmm. So it's like the highest, and back to paradox, the highest rank or or status or station or destination um, that a human being can reach is in being completely devoid of selfish will, selfish ego, and being i like to describe it like a reed flute mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right a reed flute that produces divine music is never praised by an audience for being the cause for beautiful music and never complains <laughs> You know, you never see a musical instrument saying wait a minute why are you praising him i'm the one who's been burned and emptied from the inside and had holes made into me. I mean, I'm the one who is separated from the reed bed, which is, you know, that's, that's what Molana Rumi's methnavi um, yeah. is all about, right? That's how it begins about the reed flute. But I think the Sufi, a Sufi seeker is precisely a reed flute, right? He, he, he is someone who is separated from familiarity, from home, not necessarily a physical place but who treads into the unknown beyond what is comfortable to him or her. And then they go through these stages of being burned, being uh, emptied from the inside. And these seven holes that are made into the reed in which it becomes the reed flute, for the Sufis, they represent the seven subtleties of the human being. Um, And these become opened into the unseen world, in which case they can become a channel for divine music to take place.
2: In Process Thought in Whitehead, beauty, Uh with uppercase B, plays a very prominent role. And in one of his last um, books, Adventures of Ideas, in a chapter on peace, he he, he speaks of beauty as the one thing that in a way needs no further justification. But when you experience beauty, you don't have to say because. Yes. It's it's in the experience itself. Beautiful. And beauty beauty includes uh, moral beauty, uh, tragic beauty, artistic beauty, natural beauty. In the House of Beauty, there are many rooms. Uh, the, The two phrases he uses to kind of capture that sense of beauty are harmony and intensity. And so when they come together, harmony and intensity, you have something beautiful and it can be in things you perceive. It can also be in, in emotions you have. It yes. can be in relationships, but God is connected to beauty in Whitehead. And I've often appreciated that dimension of the Sufism that I've known. Um, yes and in the poems of Rumi, among others, in translation, and also appreciation of the the role of longing, Mm -hmm. a kind of longing to be connected, longing to be close. And yes, the falling away that has to occur in the longing. So, um, Ali, I think that we've gone about an hour, and we've not yet talked about music, or beauty, yes. or the Logos, yes. or imagination, or Christ, or the Mohammedan consciousness. Yes. So there's all kinds of
0: things. Can, can we make this part one and then have a part two? Is that possible? Of course. Of course we can. And we should. But, you know, I just want to comment that, you know, Jared is, is you know, is like my heart and mind. He shared the, the that uh, narration that I had, uh, that I was definitely thinking about which is that god is beautiful and he loves Mm -hmm. beauty Mm -hmm. um and what's remarkable is that you know i mentioned that from the sufi metaphysical perspective divine names are in one two groups beauty and majesty and ibn arabi is very clear that they're not equal Uh uh that ultimately divine beauty overcomes divine majesty. Yeah. And it, that, that understanding is rooted in the Quran, because the most august manifestation or theophany of divine majesty in Islamic theology is the throne, God's throne. That, that, that's kind of like the display mm-hmm. of divine majesty. And, and God says the most merciful has resided atop the throne ah uh, no. Nice. So for many sufis and the the name ar-rahman is is thought of as being the most essential attribute of divine beauty yeah so that verse is understood that god's beauty overwhelms his majesty yeah and that's actually described in other narrations where god says my my mercy has surpassed my anger to the degree that many Sufi saints have said that the ultimate affair of all creation goes back to mercy, to divine mercy. Mm -hmm. Um, That's ultimately what what the affair of creation is all about. In Ibn Arabi, he says, God does not manifest Himself to His creation in absolute unmitigated majesty. Mm. He does manifest in unmitigated absolute beauty. But the majesty that he manifests himself in is actually the majesty of beauty. Interesting. So it even is rooted in beauty. And the reason, as you said, why it is something to be tasted Mm -hmm. just as is, Mm -hmm. is because it is very clear. Mm -hmm. It is very lucid. Right? It is very innocent, I think is a good word, right? It is very right. innocent. It is pre the bureaucracy of cognition, shall I yeah. say? Yeah, nice phrase. Right? It, it's just a, it's just a, it's just something that is very infant-like, that is sort of looking at an infant making a painting. Mm-hmm. Um, you enjoy it without having to rationalize Mm-hmm. What is going on? I, I and I hear I, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, of uh, an expression a statement by Picasso. He said, "Every child is born an artist. The trick is how to remain a child once we become adults."
1: Uh-huh.
0: Right? And, and 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 it's really this this uh, concept. One of the things that Derrida talks about, and he says there is there is two types of future. And the reason why I like Derrida is because he does with French what Ibn Arabi does in in Arabic. And he says, uh, the first is le futur, which is the future, the scheduled, predictable future, where you put on your calendar, I have a doctor's appointment next week, I have this. And he says, this is not the real future for me. He says, the real future for me is l'avenir, that which is to come. (laughs) And he says, it is the imminent future that is so unpredictable that it is actually part of the present moment. Yeah. And I think that beauty, the beauty we're talking about with capital B is this lavenir. Yeah. It's not something you can schedule. It's not something you can predict. It's leaving, as Ibn Arabi and the Sufis say, the Sufi is the son of the moment. Ah, uh, Yeah. Right, it's leaving yourself completely open to receiving.
2: That that idea resonates a whole lot with process thought. By the way, it has integrity of its own and doesn't need to be connected with process thought at all. It's beautiful right. in its own right. Um, but the idea that we live moment from moment, moment by moment, yes, and we need to be receptive to the deep in each moment, and and that is not entirely predictable. It's right. not schedulable. Yes. And so to have to be a folk of the moment, a son of the moment, a daughter of yes. the moment is extremely important. And that's where initial aims come in. Those those fresh possibilities from the beauty. So I do need to close Ali for now, but there's so much to talk about music.
0: I understand that you're a musician, is this right? Yes, yes, I am. And, and, and you know that we can bring uh, Hazrat Inayat Khan and his mysticism of sound and music into that I'm, conversation. I want to go there. So, yeah, many blessings, uh, Ali. Thank, Thank you so, so much. It's a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to continuing our conversation.
1: Conversations in Process is a podcast from Open Horizons and the Cobb Institute, hosted by Jay McDaniel. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to support the show, Consider becoming a friend of the Cobb Institute or making a donation at Cobb.institute. Or leave a review through Apple Podcasts to help others find out about the show. Thank you for listening.